Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is UBI and Utopia, part two of the Automation Ruse. Our music today comes from the 2016 release Man-Made Object by Gogo Penguin, whose music can be described as minimalist jazz electronica. But don't take my word for it. This is Unspeakable World. Part one of the Automation Ruse aired on February 9th and featured author Jason E. Smith, whose new book, Smart Machines and Service Work, is subtitled Automation in an Age of Stagnation. And it's that crisis of stagnation that propels us into today's conversation with Aaron Beninov, a researcher at Humboldt University of Berlin and an economic historian whose new book is Automation and the Future of Work, published by Verso. Beninov centers his work first on the slowing of growth and productivity and challenges what seems a universal assertion by economists. It's the machines, stupid. To this, Beninov says, no, it's a predictable scenario of global capitalist production, a glut of industrial capacity. So, not the machines, and not likely to be the machines in the future either. Tech advances when the economy is flush, and capitalists will invest money in those innovations. What then are the automation gurus on about? The reality is that while machines aren't pushing humans to the side, it is still true that there's no work or less work, more unemployment and much more underemployment. The automation theorists thus sense opportunity. No work can be a good thing if our basic needs and services are met. Heck, maybe you'll actually want to work even without the economic coercion of starvation or exposure. How can you eat well and be protected from the elements under a roof if you're not working for a wage or already wealthy? The answer from all parties on the right, center, and left appears to have one common element, a universal basic income, or UBI. However, the details of a UBI are very different depending on which think tank fellow is leading your TED Talk. Lucky for us, Aaron Beninov will help us identify the pitfalls of all the above, while also pointing the way to a future that has quite a bit to do with the utopian thinking of the past. We begin today with why it's important to challenge the economic narrative that the jobless present is the result of employing robots to do human work. And now, UBI and Utopia, part two of the Automation Ruse, on Interchange, on WFHB. Now, Aaron, you spend the bulk of your book's 100 pages laying out why automation and the fear of future automation is kind of an excuse for job loss or um, a story, maybe a myth. Robots haven't taken all our jobs and likely won't take all our jobs. Tell us why you wanted to make an argument about uh, automation not being a problem or not being the problem 
I think that the automation theorists already five years ago were really drawing attention to the troubles in the labor market and how hard it was for people to find jobs and the way that that contributed to rising inequality and feelings of insecurity uh, in the economy. The issue was just that their explanation was wrong. And it's really fascinating that people could pay attention to this stuff and just get the story so wrong. I thought that was a really interesting phenomenon in itself. And the way I explain it just very simply is that technological changes are being implemented into production in the economy all the time. But the claim of the automation theorists is that we live in an age of accelerating technological change, that there's really something unique, a breakthrough in this period, uh, especially around machines being able to perform cognitive tasks that previously were impossible using things like machine learning and advanced robotics and so on. And it's very easy to see in the data that it's just not happening. On the contrary, you would expect that labor productivity would be growing very quickly if there was a new wave of automation storming through the economy. In fact, labor productivity growth rates are falling. And what's really going on, in my view, has to do with the tendency to stagnation, given in the uh, running down of the industrial growth engine and a switch from a regime in which people are being drawn into high productivity jobs in industry to a regime in which people are being drawn into low productivity jobs in the service sector. I mean, the, the trend that I'm describing is that for the most part, productivity growth rates are actually falling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not that productivity is falling, but the rate at which productivity grows due to implementations of technologies into production, that's actually slowing down, not speeding up. And that would that would seem to suggest, well, you know, it sounds like the economy is using a lot of workers. But the reason why the economy is not really showing a very strong demand for labor, we're very far from full employment all the time, is that the economy itself is just growing more and more slowly. And that's due to, um, on the one hand, an effect of globalization, like Economists said that all of these countries, when they were trading more, that they were going to have all of these complementarities and they were going to specialize and produce all this stuff ever more efficiently together. That's not what happened. Um, as industrial capacity spread around the world, companies mostly were producing the same basket of things and um, they were competing all the more to do it. And that drove down rates of industrial expansion across the world. And in fact, the whole world has been deindustrializing for about 10 years. With so many countries having industrial capacity, any one country can't expand its capacity like China was for a while without taking capacity away from other countries. And then the other thing is that what's left once that happens are services which are non-tradable and are not as much affected by globalization and um, industrial or global overcapacity. But those services, precisely because they're services, tend to have much lower rates of productivity growth. It's not necessarily the case. Like services can at times um, see faster productivity growth, but it's mostly when they when they industrialize. It's when they look more like an industrial process. So you think about McDonald's in the past or, you know, an Amazon warehouse today. It's when these activities come to look more like industry. That's the only way to um, raise productivity growth steadily over time. For the most part, that's the most normal way to do it. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is economic historian Aaron Beninov. And our show is about automation and the future of work, where the road to utopia, yellow brick and otherwise, is full of driverless vehicles propelled by the extremely amorphous idea of a universal basic income. 
One of the things that struck me as interesting is trying to understand this through uh, some historical lenses as well. And, and you do trace, again, the understanding that the capitalist economy would run down or should necessarily run down even. Um, one of the, I guess, uh, things that I'd like to hear a little bit more about are some of these historical understandings. You note uh, a plan of William Beveridge's uh, from 1944, but there's a sense that you get to a certain point of capacity and growth that you run out of, or in some sense, uh, it's important to stop the idea of growth and, and move into a different kind of thing that you measure for prosperity or happiness or whatever we talk about now, but the idea that you might instead increase leisure uh, rather than increase growth or, or something like that, decrease work hours to manage the change in economic production. Yeah, I think that that was a common idea among some economists, including Keynes, that basically in that era, they thought of people having like needs that were pretty well known in a way. And um, the idea was that, you know, once we could expand the economy enough to meet people's needs, um, that, you know, we could we could wind down the economy. It's not that people didn't have wants. It's that a lot of the things that people were thought of as wanting were kinds of public goods, like better public entertainment and, you know, the quality of libraries and cafes and museums, like public spaces and so on. So the idea was that once we met people's needs and could do that um, very efficiently, we would start to wind down the economy. Uh, in the post-war period, the idea that, you know, everyone has infinite preferences and that, um, there's just always more and more that people uh, want and that there's no real distinction between want and needs. That was, of course, all fueled by um, the fossil fuel economy and the proliferation of, you know, industry and cars across the United States and the world. It's very interesting to think about how to recover some of those right. older ideas about what the limits would be to growth and the, the relationship of growth to happiness. I think it's still common today for Keynesians to think that you can just choose the growth rate, that governments have this incredible ability to determine what happens in the economy. And I think that they um, really overestimate the degree to which that's the case. But I think that these older debates that you mentioned that I bring up in my book about what the point should be and where the goal lies and whether um, past a certain point, it's more important to... Uh, redistribute work and reduce work hours and change what it is to be a human being in the world, to give people security, to give them the free time to pursue their passions in a way that isn't just about telling them to make a career out of the things that they love, which turns out to be very problematic. Right. One thing you said there, and I think is fascinating because, uh, you know, not being an economist, not having, you know, much in the way of uh, studied anything like this. Uh, when we talk about these large systems or these ideas, and you just mentioned again, uh, a government having control of the economy to a certain extent and trying to understand what it is that it's doing with it. And to hear you say they considered winding down the economy, it's kind of a hard thing to get your head around, you know, this kind of idea that it, the economy exists or existed in a particular way to fulfill particular functions, uh, social needs, uh, public needs, versus the concept of, you know, a capitalist profit system, which seems to have one thing to serve and one thing to 
to to do. Um, so these are hard things. It's like trying to think about winding down the economy as winding down uh, capitalist ideas of what the economy is for. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about people like Beveridge and Keynes, especially kind of developing their ideas or kind of their ideas coming to maturation in the 40s is that that was the war era. And it was an era in which you could subordinate industry to the state, right, as part of the war effort. And unions could also be subordinated to the state as part of the war effort. And obviously, it's just not true that that's that's just not true in general in peacetime. Um, it's very difficult to control businesses. Businesses have a very strong capacity to influence government policy and to limit possibilities for government policy through the threat of disinvesting mm. from the economy and causing a recession or causing the economy to shrink or or causing um, jobless recoveries and so on. All of the things that really have been happening give businesses a real stranglehold over government. It's obviously possible to imagine that changing. It's possible to imagine all different kinds of worlds that aren't driven by profitability. Um, but insofar as we still have that system, businesses exert a lot of control and winding down the economy isn't really possible as a technocratic program that would be imposed by a few smart people from above. It's time for a break. Here's another from GoGo Penguin's Man-Made Object. This is All Res. Stay with us for more UBI and Utopia when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, economic historian and author Aaron Beninov is our guest. His new book is Automation and the Future of Work. In this segment of UBI and Utopia, we take a look at what seems overlooked in most conversations about the economy. Only a handful of people, and that's barely metaphorical, control the ways we might organize our lives.
Well, you mentioned uh, something in, in the book also that I think maybe illustrates this problem. The Meidner plan in Sweden in the 70s confronts this particular issue, the power of, of capital uh, being in few hands um, and having to deal with the power of those few people to, to make governmental and thus public decisions. Yeah, so the Meidner plan in Sweden was an idea. It, it arose out of very particular conditions in Sweden that had to do with um, incomes policy, like the way that, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., like, wages are just set person by person. People are paid different amounts, right? So you have to imagine a society where there's a kind of society-wide incomes policy where wages and the the kind of uh, ratios between wages between unskilled and semi-skilled and skilled workers and engineers are all kind of fixed by these um, big union management struggles and and so on. The minor plan arose in a very specific context, and um, but the but the basic idea was that um, there'd be a progressive transfer of ownership from the current owners to the working class, and um, that obviously posed a really big threat to the, to society. Although it's interesting, I mean, pension funds own very large portion of the economy, but they aren't used in any way to really determine how the economy is run. Even the pension funds are seeking um, financial returns in ways that are just a part of the soup of capitalist society. But yeah, the Meidner plan uh, was defeated in Sweden. Um, there, you know, very small efforts in that direction in the UK, like the Lucas plan also went nowhere. And uh, yeah, so we just, we live in a society where, and I think a lot of people know this because of the work of um, Thomas Piketty, that Wealth is very, very highly concentrated. And what that means is that the decisions of a very small portion of society determine the direction that society takes. They determine the investment, the way um, work is carried out, and um, the you know how fast the economy is going to grow. And under the conditions of stagnation I've described before, they're just not investing very much. And that's why the economy isn't growing very quickly at all. And that's why there's kind of persistent underemployment in the economy. And of course, governments now have spent decades trying to convince capital to lure them back um, into making big bets on investment. And none of those things have worked. In fact, the problem has gotten worse. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, removing all these labor and environmental regulations and generating huge asset bubbles that appear to create financial or do create for a moment financial bonanzas, none of that has um, restored the growth rate. The, the growth rate just continues to fall. So the, the idea there being that the government, instead of actually trying to, what, uh, make work happen on its own, uh, is trying to incentivize business to do that? Yeah. yeah. There's no real challenges at that level, obviously. Right. I mean, there's nowhere where 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 states are saying, hey, we're just going to organize production right. ourselves. And, and, you know, there's good reasons for that. I mean, people are very concerned about um, there, there'd have to be a whole process of convincing people that, you know, basic aspects of their lives can be done in a non-market way. Right. You point to the problem here that, that capital uh, or capitalism uh, needs to be disempowered. And this is the point that we've been talking about, the idea that so so few people have the ability to to basically direct the way 
our lives are lived through work, lack of work, uh, unemployment, uh, and underemployment. Um, if you don't mind, uh, briefly talk a little bit about, you know, underemployment and why it matters in the situation or why, why it's important. In essence, just like we were talking about economic measures like GDP a moment ago and productivity, a big measure for the economy is unemployment. And unemployment rates and GDP growth rates kind of come onto the scene at the same time in the post-war era. Um, the problem is that unemployment is a kind of paradoxical measure. It's much easier to measure unemployment when the economy is growing quickly and there are very few unemployed people. The slower the economy is growing and the more unemployment there is, the harder it is to measure. And the obvious reason for that is that on the one hand, um, people become discouraged. They stop looking for work. This is a big issue right now in the pandemic. The unemployment rate is improving to a large extent because people have stopped looking for work. And right. one way to succeed in getting the unemployment rate down is just to, to demoralize people about their possibility of finding a job. Um, the other way that you can bring down the unemployment rate when the economy is growing very slowly is for people to just find work that isn't very good, right. um, that underpays them in terms of their previous wages, that doesn't use the skills that they've developed before, or that, you know, is part-time. And it's just a very interesting feature of the U.S. that underemployment here is particularly hard to measure because basically workers have so few protections. It's very easy for businesses to force workers to kind of take low quality jobs um, because the workers really don't have any other options and then to use their insecurity to keep their wages low. In Europe and in Japan and other places, there are way stronger protections for workers once they have a job. Businesses and governments have kind of worked together to create legally disenfranchised sections of the workforce because they're on fixed contracts or their work is temporary. They don't have the same benefits, the same protections as fully full-time regularly employed workers. That's what gave no rise to the notion of a kind of precarious labor force in, um, in, in Europe and talk about precarity. From a European perspective, all workers, almost all workers in the United States, except tenured professors and maybe some unionized workers, are precarious in the European sense. And that just means that in the U.S., underemployment is very widespread and there's a lot of wage stagnation. Whereas in Europe and Japan, it tends to be more concentrated that there's a sector of the population or a sector of the workforce that's precarious and another sector that's more securely employed. In most countries in the world that aren't advanced capitalist countries, there's a very small portion of the workforce that has very secure employment in big um, factories and in government and a few other formal establishments. And the vast majority are, are more insecure than even U.S. insecure workers. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is economic historian Aaron Beninov. And our show is about automation and the future of work, where the road to utopia, yellow brick and otherwise, is full of driverless vehicles propelled by the extremely amorphous idea of a universal basic income. I 
feel like in in one of those chapters you talked about sort of a distinction between uh, like authoritarian governments as well that had strong protections for workers uh, by trying to stabilize their workforce as in a kind of family traditional role. So uh, places like Brazil um, have, you know, a person will have their job for a long time. It will be strongly protected, but the rest of the of the of the society will be struggling. Uh, but it, it's an interesting sort of, um, uh, you know, family values perspective. I mean, honestly, that could just describe France as much yeah. as anywhere else. Yeah. In the U.S., people tend to talk about European welfare states as if they were all this kind of, you know, left political project. But most welfare states in Europe were actually developed by conservative governments, and they really wanted to inculcate in the population kind of nationalistic and imperial identities, um, traditional family values. And those things were really built into the structure of the welfare state. Um, the exception is really in Scandinavia, where you actually had um, welfare states that were implemented by workers' movements, uh, and actually in the UK as well, just in the 1940s. And at least those, those aspects of the welfare state um, are much more about freeing or empowering individuals rather than kind of shoring up the nationalist patriarchal family. Let's move into this automation discourse. Um, again, we're we're struggling with these ideas of why um, why we work, how we work, and you know how work is organized. And it, uh, as far as I can tell, right now we're saying that work is generally organized, at least in the U.S., in a way that serves capitalist profit. And these particular people and organizations, institutions, corporations manage or direct how we live our lives, the kinds of money we make. Uh, the kinds of value we put on certain jobs, you know, wages are set in, I assume, irrational ways that may, I guess, rationalize profit, but uh, don't make sense in terms of education or skill. Um, so we have kind of an ir- irrational system that doesn't actually benefit anyone when we talk about, you know, the things that we want to do to get work, how we want to live our lives, you know, the things that we can apply our talents to. Um, these things are are not sort of rationally or logically um, making sense in the job world because they're not important <laughs> to, to, to the bottom line, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, we live in a, we still live in a society where, um, a very small number of wealthy people are the ones making the investment decisions and that kind of structures the productive system, its growth and shrinkage and so on. And workers, people who don't have massive amounts of money and investments and so on have very little say besides deciding, you know, who to employ them. Right. Um, and even if they have a union, you know, under conditions that have lasted now for a very long time, unions have often been um, part of managing the the slow decline. So in this space, then we walk into automation theory, automation discourse. Its goal seems to be utopian in many ways. The idea that um, work is the problem or we need to figure out ways in which we are sort of untethered from work as the necessity of our life to give us food, shelter, etc. That we're coerced to work in into this space is automation theory, uh, automation discourse. Uh, so uh, briefly, I guess, give a general idea, if you can, of, of what this discourse is, and then we'll look at this, some particular variations. The automation discourse is just this idea that um, we live in a period of really brilliant 
technologies and that the problems workers are facing finding jobs is uh, due to the fact that these technologies are being more and more implemented in production and that we're producing more and more, but kind of using fewer and fewer workers. And that's causing a crisis of society that's only going to get worse in the coming years. And that, uh, therefore, the only way to prevent a kind of nightmare scenario of mass unemployment amidst a world of plenty is to provide people with a universal basic income. And so automation theory and discourses around automation have been one major um, source of a push for UBI. It's time for another break. This is Smara, another from GoGo Penguin's 2016 release, Man-Made Object. Asmara is an Italian dueling sword, a kind of precursor to the modern fencing sword. More on automation theorists and the drive for a meaningful, workless future when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is UBI and Utopia, and our guest is Aaron Beninov, author of Automation and the Future of Work. In this segment, we take up the sword of precarity as we try to understand the way scarcity is an enforced economic state responsible for undermining our psychological well-being. So UBI is a, sort of a linchpin here of, of how we're going to get to this post-scarcity world. And the idea of scarcity itself, I feel like, is is constructed on one level because, again, we're, we're forced into thinking of scarcity because of the economic environment we live in that pushes money into the hands of a few people and lets the rest of us live in scarcity. Scarcity isn't necessary. The goal here is to say, well, we agree with that. Uh, let's get to that space that is post-scarcity, and the best way to do it is to give everyone a universal basic income that will 
untether them from work if they want to be untethered or allow them some freedoms in work in, in general. So UBI has political variations, I suppose. We talk, or excuse me, you talk about them in your book. There's a, a right-wing version. There's a center-left version. There's a left version. And they all get to certain places. Some seem better than others, but all we might be wary of. So do you want to give us those various versions? I think it's interesting what you said about scarcity because that's something that I um that I'm working on right now and I think it it is very interesting where that experience of scarcity comes from and the way that it has become so fundamental to how the economics profession understands like the basic assumptions of its framework just to say something about that mm-hmm. like it it is clear that we all have a certain amount of income and we face that kind of budget constraint and figuring out how to spend our money, right? Like we all have, we all live under scarcity in those terms of um, we, we all have some amount of income we make in a year and we have to figure out how to divide it up among um, the different things that we need to buy. And that's, that's kind of the general economic idea of scarcity. Mm-hmm. But the truth is of course, that that affects people in very different ways. So many people, you know, maybe most people, um, are worried about how they're going to meet their basic needs with the income that they're able to find. And psychologists and others, behavioral economists have really shown recently that that feeling of personal in or familial insecurity, that feeling of scarcity has really dramatic consequences for a person's life to feel that they can't meet their basic needs. And it's very different from the kind of budget constraint that incredibly wealthy or just, you know, moderately wealthy people have. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of what scarcity is. And to think about what it would mean to overcome scarcity in terms of providing everyone with a way to meet their basic needs. The thing about um, basic income as a framework, and here we have to distinguish a little bit between basic income as a framework and automation theorists' use of basic income. But the idea of basic income is that, well, if people are having trouble meeting their basic needs, we should just give them money. And you're right that there's a a right-wing version of this idea that comes from people like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek um, under the name of a negative income tax a kind of idea that there should be a minimum amount of income that everyone earns. Um, and the point of that is that for neoliberal economists like Milton Friedman and to, you know, in a more recent period, the person who's taken this up is the infamous uh, racist Charles Murray, who wrote the bell curve. He's a big proponent of UBI from the, the paleo conservative right wing. They're saying, look, you know, we don't want people to make collective decisions about how to meet their needs. We want to give people money so they can meet their needs on the private market. And you can think here about things like basic income fits into a story about school vouchers and private health insurance, right? And all of these kind of ideas that people should be meeting their needs through participating in the market. If people don't have the money to do that, they should be given money. The center left perspective is different. It's saying, look, you know, we should meet people's needs, but we want some of that to be occurring through a welfare state and some of it to be occurring through um, giving people money. That's people like Fan Paris and Guy Standing who sort of think like maybe a basic income could start off really small and even kind of conditional, but that it would grow over time and that, you know, this would kind of provide a basis for people to um, participate in the economy on a more equal footing. And then, you know, the far left wing version 
which really is part of the automation discourse, is part of a more general automation theory about UBI is just to say that, well, the economy is now growing so fast due to automation um, or our ability to provide for, you know, all kinds of wants and needs is going to increase radically over time with things like artificial intelligence and advanced robotics and so on. The problem is that no one's going to be able to get a job. And so we have to give people UBI. Um, it's not even really a B. It's not a basic income at that point. It's just uh, a way to put money into people's hands so that they can enjoy the abundance that technologies are creating. And again, I think it's hard for people to understand the made up quality of life. I don't know how often people think their life is sort of a construct, a fantasy construct of value. When we start to think about UBI in these terms, you know, you're saying we're going to give you money so you can buy stuff. What's the money for? You know, a lot of UBI payments would go to rent and rent would go right, into the hands right, of landlords. Sure, right, so right, like, right. what's the point? Is what we need to do to live in a society where, you know, rents are still high and landlords still do the less, the least that they can to, right. um, you know, make your living situation good. Um, and, and we should just, you know, have that, those rent payments guaranteed by the state in the form of UBI. Is that, is that like going to solve the problem. Yeah, that would be a way to think about it. Because like the other option, obviously, would be to, um, you know, expropriate landlords and start to think about how we're going to collectively manage um, housing. Yeah. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is economic historian Aaron Beninov. And our show is about automation and the future of work where the road to utopia, yellow brick and otherwise, is full of driverless vehicles propelled by the extremely amorphous idea of a universal basic income. One of the things that, you know, you struggle with in these these particular equations is is just the idea that you're going to have to create particular very stringent regulations and prohibitions on how much things can cost. You know, if you're just going to suck all your UBI up into particular capitalist hands, which is part of it, I suppose, part of the uh, the thought process or the the experiment is is how how we get on the left anyway, is how we get out from under capitalism using UBI and automation. Scarcity is an, an abundance within capitalism. They sort of tend to encourage us to think of abundance as something that would be achieved through material breakthroughs. Like the automation story is part of a general capitalist story about progress in which everyone getting to live a good life is deferred to some future moment where, you know, technology, technological achievements make this possible. And until that point is reached, we have to keep with the current system because who's going to develop all these brilliant technologies if not um, capitalist entrepreneurs? But, you know, what I'm interested in is looking at kind of a longer history of thinking about Mm -hmm. what it means to overcome scarcity and and what abundance is. There are precedents for understanding scarcity and post-scarcity that the way forward might be the way backward in some sense, not necessarily for nostalgia, but the idea that there have been these ideas um, in in the past already, and that you you do make parallels between the 19th century 
uh, economically as well as uh, in in thinking, perhaps in in trying to conceive of the best way forward uh, into a better space. Uh, and this is you know some of the talk of utopian thinking, uh, which is you know often derided, but uh, I, I find it a good thing <laughs> to to have people thinking as best they can of the best possible world. Uh, and and you do go through various thinkers that have sort of uh, expressed these these ideas of the ways in which we can sort of not be drudges uh, in labor and um, not have uh, to you know be cursed with labor as 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 God curses Adam and Eve. Let's go through some of those. These are thinkers that uh, probably many people will know of as well. So uh, from Thomas More forward to to the automation theorists. I go back to um, Thomas More in the book because I, I found his his book Utopia to be just really interesting, and he's drawing on um, early Christians and Plato. Um, but he really comes up with this idea that he's living through early capitalism. Uh, he's talking about the enclosures. You know, all these peasants are being kicked off their land to make way for sheep, and then these former or ex peasants are not able to find work. And so they are stealing bread and then the state is hanging them. And he's like, what is going on? And, and he writes this kind of satirical, but quite serious book um, about how to solve that issue. And he essentially comes up with something um, really interesting. I mean, he says, look, you know, people feel really insecure and they're not able to live good lives because of this intense economic insecurity. And so what we need to do is we need to take the work that has to be done and divide it up in a fair way. And um, in this way, also make sure that everyone gets to share in the free time and security. That's the result of us doing this work. Um, and the fundamental idea there is that, you know, obviously we have a lot more technological capacities than Thomas More did. And we wouldn't want to live in that kind of world that he lived in, um, which was really lacking in all different kinds of ways and even had slaves in his utopia. Right. This is the um, 16th century, right? Yeah. This is uh, the early 1500s. Yeah. And yeah, there's a whole history of people kind of returning to Thomas More and taking up this idea of organizing and redistributing the work that has to be done, uh, freely giving basic goods. So not with the mediation of money, um, but really just, you know, organizing the distribution of these basic uh, goods and services and then ensuring that everyone has free time to pursue their passions. Um, and, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a history that goes through sort of utopian uh, socialists in the early 19th century when these ideas are rediscovered by people like Robert Owen and Etienne Cabet. Um, people like, of course, Marx and Engels take up these ideas uh, and then in the later 19th century, there's a whole history of thinkers really thinking about democratizing the economy and democratizing industry, who also take up these same ideas um, from, you know, the IWW in the U.S. and W.E.B. Du Bois to um, people like John Dewey even. Uh, and in Germany, people like um, uh, Neurath. So there's a whole there's a whole history of this tradition and in a lot of ways, I think people in the 20th century came to associate 
socialism, with Stalinism and industrialization and productivism. And I guess that I'm sort of trying to recover this earlier tradition, which I think is a very fruitful way to think about what it is that we have to do and how to deal with this problem that um, the economy isn't growing very fast, that job insecurity is spreading and that, you know, people feel that they can't really um, live their life. They can't determine their lives and their life plans for themselves. It's time for our final break. This is Weird Cat, one more from Man-Made Object by Gogo Penguin. More on the utopian dream of banishing waged drudgery with Aaron Beninov on automation and the future of work when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest is economic historian Aaron Beninov. This is part two of the Automation Ruse. In our final segment, we spend time looking backward at the utopian ideas of thinkers like Thomas More and Peter Kropotkin, and then shift our attention away from work toward gathering strength in organizing social movements. A lot of the systems we've we sort of created have sort of forced us into into these well really cooperative collective needs in the first place right like if you live in a city you've got to deal with this sort of cooperative function of having food delivered so we we already have sort of processes that might be useful so it's one of those things where you think uh, we can use what we have to walk into the past and make the past a better place which is kind of how I think of automation or, or the idea of, of returning to a place where we recognize that life isn't about, um, paying the bills so you can, you know, enjoy, uh, 47 minutes of your life. 
which is, you know, part of the issue here. One of the things I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of these thinkers have even done is try to understand how much time you might actually work. You know, how much time is necessary for labor and how it's just sort of generalized labor that you might then work in skilled um, benefits to skilled labor that aren't about, you know, increasing pay uh, or wages, but increasing time off or, you know, or you work less if you have more skill. Um, you know, things like that are, are interesting ways to conceive of things. I think, Thomas Moore, you, you write, uh, imagine the six-hour workday at, at most. Uh, I think Thoreau in, uh, in the bean field or the economy chapter says he works, you know, three hours a day hoeing his beans. <laughs> so, so, uh, and he ate fine. You know, these, these are the things that we're trying to reconceive because as you say, we're, you know, we're in, not in a good place as we continue to sort of move into these greater and greater uh, wealth inequalities and material inequalities uh, in terms of our ability to manage life. Are there a particular utopians that you like most? I know you you obviously mentioned Edward Bellamy, as Peter Kropotkin, William Morris. Uh, which which book, if you had to choose one, would you say, besides Thomas More, you seem to like that one? I would really recommend that people read a particular chapter from Kropotkin's book, The Conquest for Bread, which is called The Need for Luxury, which I think is a very beautiful um, chapter. And I think he's one of the most original thinkers in this tradition because he really focuses on a problem that I think is, it would be the, the big problem if we were able to create a world where I think all of these thinkers are united and kind of imagining sort of like you indicated a, a 15 to 25 hour work week that provides people with um, all of the kind of necessaries of life, as well as um, giving them, you know, in this world, probably too, there'd be some kind of income that people can, you know, spend on their particular wants, whether they like to go on vacations more or live in a larger um, apartment or house or, you know, live in a very desirable place versus somewhere that's kind of more isolated. You know, there are a lot of choices that people have to make. Um, but in any case, the, the thing that Kropotkin really um, captures is that if we have all this free time, we don't only need time, we also need resources to make use of our time. Mm. Many of these kind of post-scarcity thinkers sort of think about free time and even Marx is kind of like this at times to think of um, people's free time in terms of like relaxation or personal individual um, self-development. Uh, and obviously that's really important and, you know, nothing to sneeze at. But people will also, you know, what, what human beings do when they have free time is they get together with other people and they make all kinds of stuff and they engage in all kinds of different you know, collective activities, whether it's like games or music or art making or dancing or like basic scientific research into, you know, physics or something. And, mm -hmm. and the point is that all of these free activities require a lot of resources and people have to have some way to be able to access those things. So one really big problem with basic income as a framework besides um, what we've already talked about is just that it's about providing people just with a way to access the necessaries of life, not to kind of benefit from the incredible capacities that we have uh, as human beings in advanced technological environment. 
to reshape our world and make things of our world. So people have to have, be able to access those resources in the so-called realm of freedom um, in order to live fulfilling lives. And I think Kropotkin is one of the few people in this chapter on the need for luxury to really um, pick up on that. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is economic historian Aaron Beninov. And our show is about automation and the future of work, where the road to utopia, yellow brick and otherwise, is full of driverless vehicles propelled by the extremely amorphous idea of a universal basic income. Is there a way in which we're not, we've not moved much beyond these particular thinkers? I mean, are these automation theorists that you think have uh, the most to say? Um, are they saying anything particular new? Are they dealing with the state versus the corporation or capitalism in ways that these other um, 19th century thinkers wouldn't have been able to? Or are they confounding? Um, they're, they're not quite understanding the problems of how we we tend to blame particular things for our woes uh, so you know we might blame capitalism if we're on the, on the left if we're on the right we might blame uh, the state um, for alienating us from our labors you know these kinds of things so um, are these things being addressed in ways that make sense or do you think that we you know that we are, we're not going to do better than than looking to the 19th century for some of these things I think we can do a lot better because today we have access to a whole range of um, new communication tools and digital technologies. And we just know a lot more about the world um, in a lot of ways. You could say socially, you know, we've regressed in some ways. I don't know. But um, our capacities are much greater and our I, our visions of the future should be correspondingly big. So that's what I'm really interested in thinking about right now. Um, I, I, I would mention that in the 80s and 90s, um, especially with reference to this problem called the socialist calculation problem or debate, um, there was a revival of interest in the question of alternative economies and or, you know, as I would say, the end of the economy and its replacement with a different kind of system of managing production and free time. In that era of the 80s and 90s, there were just a lot of different proposals. So I don't know if you know, like participatory economics comes out of this moment. Mm. It was really a moment of reform of the Soviet Union. And it seemed like there were a lot of possibilities and it was already over. I would say by like the mid nineties, the, the effort and attention to those things. And I think you'll find a lot of interesting stuff there too. Although they were, um, with the times, they were particularly interested in, uh, market, market forms of socialism. Uh, and, and a lot of the interest in UBI kind of continues that tradition of market socialism today. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that there's a lot more interesting things we can do. We also live, as we've been talking about, in a largely service-based economy. So a lot of the models for what an alternative would look like that are really focused on, as it were, kind of male industrial labor or men doing hard work with, you know, big rocks and tools and stuff, 
that isn't really what we need today, right? When we think about the kinds of work that has to be done and how that work should be organized. So keeping that in mind is really important. Though I should say that, you know, when it comes to issues of organizing housework, uh, Kropotkin was also already very far ahead of his time. I think one of the things you point out in your book is the fact that uh, people have sort of shifted their commitments or their energies in some sense, you know, away from, from work as a, as a space of, of organizing and trying to, you know, organize around social issues as much as anything else. I think that, you know, a lot of earlier work-based identities are sort of breaking down and people are finding other forms of collectivity to fight and struggle around because even if they're not as focused on or, uh, on organizing in their workplaces and there's a lot of difficulties they face in doing that, they're still getting hammered by the economy. Um, and so it makes sense that people are trying to figure out new forms of collectivity to fight around that. And as they are doing so, and as we see all of these social struggles taking place, um, they're also creating new possibilities for workplace organizing. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I look at when I want to be optimistic about the future. So those things and the utopias and kind of visionary science fiction and visions of a better tomorrow Right. that um, I think people are becoming increasingly interested in and in that it's our, our sort of, um, you know, we have to do the work of, of, of thinking through those issues of, right. of what a different tomorrow would look like because the truth is a lot of the visions of the past, not the ones I've talked about here, but a lot of the other ones that are available to people, they just don't sound that good. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to figure out you know, uh, a better pathway and to participate in and uh, the social movements of our time. That's our show. We'll close with a final track from Go Go Penguin's man-made object. This is Protest. Thanks to Aaron Beninoff for joining me via Zoom to discuss his new book, Out from Verso, Automation and the Future of Work. Remember, this is part two of the Automation Rules. We'll have a link to part one, The Crisis of Stagnation, in the web post for this show. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next. Thanks for listening.